0: to try to convince me to save the world. Some of our ideas are a bit ambitious. I know how hard this is for you to hear. Governments should be afraid of their people. you got the makings of
1: greatness in you. What we do in life
0: echoes in eternity. If you could see your whole life from start to finish. Then we would be given a choice to betray our chosen destinies. I have to believe in a world outside my own. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks.
1: Love is the one thing that transcends dimensions of time and space. Are you watching closely?
0: Welcome, my beautiful, wonderful listener to the Talking About Talking podcast, where we talk about everything and anything, and we talk about talking about those things. Today, I am joined by Dave Epp. He is the Member of Parliament for Chatham-Kent Leamington. He was first elected in 2019 and then re-elected in 2021. Thank you for joining me, Dave. Good morning, Trevor. Great to be here. Awesome. So Dave, you mentioned that you were doing a, I don't know if you would call it a seminar or something, but just when I first met you there, you just got done doing something about listening.
1: Yes. Well, it, it, it's a commitment I made in 2018 when I ran for the nomination. And uh, one I've upheld and tried to hold is that my role as a member of parliament to take the voices of Chatham Kentlin to Ottawa. Not so much bring the voice of Ottawa back this way. Not so much an Ottawa knows best policy. And so in order to do that, I have to meet people and give the opportunity for people to reach out to me. So I mean, we have all of the digital tools. People can email me at any point. I've got great staff here in my Lincoln constituency office, where I happen to be this morning, my Chatham office, where I'll be this afternoon, um, uh, or my Hill office in Ottawa as well. But really, uh, we also have a number of opportunities, be it evening roundtables, be it coffees with Dave, simply to go out and listen. So that is one of the commitments I made uh, when being elected, and it's one I want to continue with. Um, we've got another four-week run coming up in Ottawa, where the House is sitting. And uh, I'm around in the riding this week, and then we'll have a number of opportunities through the summer uh, where I'll be out, and then it will also be scheduled opportunities.
0: So you have these regular scheduled things where you're out and about in different locations just for people to show up and talk to you.
1: Exactly. I've, I've, don't quote me on the exact number. I think we're at about 56 since the beginning of the new year huh. uh, that we've had on the break weeks. Um, you know, it's an hour we'll set up at a coffee shop and just make it known through uh, either our mailings or through our social media that I'll be available. and so um yeah people can come in and it it helps me stay in contact and uh, um, i can take with some legitimacy then the fact that I have to constituents, they have come up to me, this is what's on their mind. Mm -hmm. And I got to Ottawa and I do that many forms, you know, speaking in the house, but also in the conversations at committee and when the different issues arise.
0: That's, that's pretty awesome. I like that. So what kind of strategies do you use when listening to make sure that you're listening properly? Sure. Usually
1: when you have an open public meeting, you say, okay, floor is yours. It's hard to get things started. Usually once you have a meeting started, it's Pretty easy, but rolling. So I will often have a subject or two. You know, what are your thoughts on this? Or this is what happened this past week. Um, You know, seniors' issues often. Um, you know, with the payroll taxes going up April the first, there's a, an interesting discussion that we need to have as a society because our demographic are driving a lot of you know a lot of our economy. It was predicted back in 1980. Uh, a book that's that. The lessons have stayed with me through most of my adult life was boom, bust, echo. But that predicted a lot of the changes, you know, we had bulge of the baby boomers. And as they moved through their various stages of life, and I'm kind of at the tail end of that movement, they drove a lot of what our social needs were, be it expanded schools for a while, more universities, then, you know, more golf courses. Now, as they, you know, that age segment is retiring, we're seeing uh, the impact on the labor force, we're seeing the impact on our draw on healthcare. We're going to be seeing in greater um, numbers the the draw on our social safety net system with the CPP, the GIS, the OAS, old age supplements, guaranteed income supplements. That's going to take an increasing part of our agenda. So how do we do that? Because we have a labor shortage. You know, a generation ago, uh, for every retiree, we had one person in seven, sorry, we had seven people working for every person retired. Today it's about three. Hmm. And the program wasn't set up. And I, I always thought this too. Well, I've worked my whole adult life, I've paid into CPP. therefore I have paid for my retirement. That's not how the program was structured by government of All Strike. It was set up to uh, you know, basically pay as you go. You had this many people working, kicking this much in, therefore so we could pay this much out. That's an oversimplification, but it really didn't account for changes in the ratios of people working to people retired. Now the government's about 10, 12 years ago did start reimagine the program and start to build toward a much larger demographic being retired we're living longer that's all good news but as we're living longer we're also drawing on cpp longer and when we have a shrinking well that's, uh, that's a bit of a misnomer because our population is growing but uh, I'll, in ratio uh uh a smaller workforce that impacts on how you fund these programs.
0: So when you're at these meetings, you would bring something like that up and then people would start just kind of ad-libbing on their different opinions about different sections of it and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so you had the Harper government at the end of it uh, to look at this and say, look, we're going to have to do something. People are living longer. You know, is it really advisable to have people only work for 30 years of their life, 25 to 30, live to be 100? You know, eventually we'll get there. We're not quite there yet. And then have CPP paid out for 40 years. So they looked at, not immediately, but over time, phasing in a retirement age of 67 instead so five. Well, the Liberal government immediately repealed that. People didn't like that. Even it, it, it didn't affect people immediately, it was only on a go forward basis. But so, I, you know, I, what I often will due to the to the folks assembled, says governments have three options. One is the look of what the Harper looked at government doing is kind of expanding the amount of time people can pay in. That's one option. The liberals rejected that. What they're doing is basically say they're upping the tax there. So they're increasing the amount that comes off your paycheck uh, and the amount that comes off the employer's paycheck, which means it impacts the economy. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so that's the second option, you know, to keep the, the program sustainable as you have more retirees and less workers. The third option, and I've had no one say that this is the way they want to go, especially in the face of inflation we face now is the third option is to cut benefits. So every government, you know, and I'm, if there's a fourth option, if your listeners have a fourth option, please encourage them to write to me. I'd love to to hear about it. But those are kind of the three options I think that governments have to wrestle with this. it's a This is not a fault issue. This is a, a fact that our birth rate now is 1.4 in Canada. Mm-hmm. Replacement rate is 2.1. So that's the function. Or that's the problem.
0: Okay. So when you're in these meetings and you guys are discussing topics like this and someone starts talking, what to kind of hone in on my original question, what strategies do you use as an individual to make sure that you're listening to understand what they're saying?
1: Yeah, well, a, a simple answer is to remember the ratio of two ears and one mouth. A politician's disease is they forget that ratio. They talk too much. Um, and often I'll try and get a diagram. Dialogue. and I've had a couple of good meetings specifically on this issue. And I don't want to place this issue above all the rest. There's all kinds of issues that come up, but this is often one. Um, because the the demographic that does attend, uh, particularly in the daytime, tend to be more seniors because they have more time in the daytime. You know, a lot of other folks are are at their work. And so I'll kick that one out because it's interesting, you know, it depends where you are in your life as to which solution you might. And you uh, know, um, and I'll I try and get a dialogue going, and often we'll have people of different uh persuasions or people of different perspectives on an issue and ideally that's great for me to listen um the challenge I have is, like I said, I want to take the voice of Chad and Kent Leamington to Ottawa. But what if those voices don't agree? And so how do you faithfully represent a disparate view on an issue? And so you need, it takes time, you know, in a, we do live in a democracy, and a democracy is where the majority rules, but the rights of the minority are respected. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> you know, I'm fighting a bit of allergy, I'll have the odd pitch in my throat it's this okay. morning. I do have a picture hanging in my Ottawa Hill office. Just as a conversation starter and as a reminder, January the 1st, 2014, the Toronto Maple Leafs played the Detroit Red Wings at the Big House in Ann Arbor, Michigan football stadium that holds 105,000 people or 110, I think, and 105,000 attended. I was able to, at a charity auction shortly thereafter buy a picture of that game. And the reason I have it hanging in my office is because it shows a panorama view of the you know of the football stadium of 105,900 the exact number of people. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of that's. The awesome opportunity I have and responsibility to take that many voices to Ottawa and they don't always mm-hmm. do themselves you
0: faithfully do. that. And that's a perfect question is how do you how do you kind of conglomerate a collection of ideas on a particular subject? Right. And then you can't help but have your own biases in your own life because right. you are the filter of that information, essentially. And I think that brings me to there, there's because that's really the responsibility of all politicians, right? As you are essentially your role is to be the filter of the voice of the people, because not everyone can have a uh, influence individually on every little thing the politicians got to get together and make the decisions so large amounts of voices have to filter through single politicians and then it goes down the line and then that brings me to wonder like if let's say there was a test let's say there was going to be a prerequisite to becoming a politician, some sort of test or proof of confidence. What do you think should be tested?
1: Well, I'm going to tell you something. My my, uh, my answer to that question has changed since I've become elected. And I'm going to give you my answer that I thought before I was elected. Okay. I thought that someone who has the opportunity and responsibility to take on this role should have some life experience revolving or involving some responsibility. You should have either run a business or uh, been a supervisor or had some previous roles on smaller stages. Mm -hmm. where you were responsible for representing others, for meeting a payroll, some level of responsibility. Basically, it's training and it's proving ground. And I still think that is a very important part. And I guess that's probably a bit of my own self bias because I was fortunate enough to be elected very young. I was elected at 24 to a local farm committee, farm organization, and then progressively had more and more opportunities to represent um, larger and larger groups on a larger and larger state. First, then to a county committee level and to a provincial level. A, a crown agency. I had the chance to be the vice chair and actually, interim chair of that organization. I've chaired the school board. And so I've had, I with municipalities. So I've had those opportunities and actually represented Canada International uh, in processing tomato world. Um, but I'm going to tell you something. In our caucus, in our conservative caucus, we have some younger folks that are phenomenal contributors to our party, phenomenal representatives, hard workers, and they come with the exuberance of youth. Um, but they are excellent communicators. Um, the youngest would be a colleague of mine that was in his fourth year, and ran for the nomination, one and then beat all the critics around, and worked his tail off, and you know became a member of Parliament at the age of twenty-two.
0: And you're saying these people ne- don't necessarily have that kind of background that life, you were discussing. A life experience yeah. that
1: many of us. Do but in further reflect, um, the parliament should represent the people, should represent the population of Canada, mm-hmm. and so it should be diverse. It shouldn't just be white haired guys and gals, um, with life experience, it should also be a university graduate working on paying off his university debt. It should be, you know, some young 30 year olds that that you know are representing that that billionaire uh, generation, and so our parliament, it's you know. If you were to take it to the census, I'm sure it's still skewed more toward folks with experience, but um, there's value in having those different voices inside of a party. So we're a part of the Westminster parliamentary system. Right now, we're a part of His Majesty's loyal opposition. Uh, still rolls off the tongue a bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm used to saying after 70 years that I'm that old, but you know, Her Majesty, but um, our job in our parliamentary system is to loyally oppose, which means critique um, the legislation that's before in order to make it better. Um, and so a wide variety of voices and perspectives.
0: That's such a good point. And that kind of brings me to something that I've heard mentioned and thought about a lot is that why is it that politicians are predominantly like business people and lawyers and all that stuff? Where Like, where where's the farmers? Where's the people well, that right work and construct? Yeah, yeah. I, I believe you have a farming background. Yeah. Uh, and that that's what I mean, right? Is it, like what about doctors? What about people that are working in agriculture? What about people that are just all kinds of different things that would encompass our infrastructure of our society and how it functions and people that are kind of masters of their fields that make that happen so that you have scientists and everyone else making decisions as opposed to people that just know about business and law?
1: I we would actually have a lot of agriculture folks back uh, background, backgrounded folks, particularly in the Conservative Party, because we, our, our strength has unfortunately been just more in the uh, rural areas of Canada. So we've probably got at least a dozen folks that are, have been at one point or not, primary agricultural producers huh. or coming from the industry, which, yeah, most people don't realize that that's kind of maybe neat. in Canada. I'm, I'm just going quickly through myself, myself and my neighbor Leanne rude would have basic ag experience. My neighbor, the other way, Chris Lewis in industry experience. So it doesn't come from an academic field, uh, industry experience. Uh, we do have a number of doc house. Um, one medical doctor on our side, and at least one, if not two, on the liberal side. Um, you know, from the construction trades, yeah, uh, I can think of a member from Manitoba who's come out of the construction industry, construction business. Um, there's a fair diversity of folks, in. and ARCOX, I, I'll admit, I don't know the go- government, caucus background well where they all came from a number of nurses I'm, I'm familiar with that I'm trying to think off the top of my head of a field in our society that's not regular. you know there's some that come from the social work side um, now whether they're in the balance that we experience you know in our society probably not quite mm-hmm. um, yeah so it would be more part of the this job is comfort in putting yourself out there so what it does do I think it attracts different personalities um, but a lot of us are quotes a type uh, enjoy people are not afraid to you know put ourselves at risk or put ourselves out there and so you know if you're a complete introvert it would, this would be a very difficult job
0: yeah you're not going to be comfortable being under the microscope under such abundant scrutiny and criticism
1: yeah it's said a less less nice way i get a thick skin and a thicker head so. <laughs> yeah that's fair
0: <laughs> so you're conservative and conservative i believe is right and then liberal is left
1: yeah i don't particularly like the terms like that I mean, there's a spectrum. It's so if you're asking, what do I mean by conservative, I mean, it comes from a number of perspectives. a historical definition or historic definition of conservatism is to preserve what is good be open to change, um, but do not to make change for change's sake itself. Um, when it comes to fiscal matters, I, I would tend to put myself more fiscally conservative, meaning, and that's more from the business background, that over time you have to be fiscally responsible. Um, there's nothing wrong with debt. I am still in personal debt uh, because of businesses and things like that. That, nothing wrong but you have to have a plan to pay it back there has to be a, a value and you know you debt is an investment uh, i don't think that's necessarily as well understood uh on the other side of the aisle um so yeah another way of coming at my philosophy from governing is uh, you know i believe the market or the market mechanism is the best mechanism for transferring the value of goods and services people between entities as opposed to central planning and you know where, where it's a top down and more of a, a socialist central approach
0: is that something that would be more liberal
1: I'm more socialist, possibly. I mean, again... What's the definition of liberalism? Mean, this classic liberalism, which I don't think the Liberal Party of Canada, they were close to being a neoclassical liberal party at all. Because if you go back to the liberal parties of uh, the founding of Canada, they were very much a business-oriented, market-oriented uh, uh, philosophy. And that's not what I'm seeing. Uh, you otherwise. see,
0: I find all of that just so immensely confusing because people will be like, oh, I'm conservative or I'm liberal or whatever. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Like, you're conservative, so you're part of this team. and." That's- And then this team that you're a part of, you have all these colleagues on your team and these teams are based on ideas and perspectives. And so you're supposed to just have certain ideas and perspectives if you're going to be on this team or if you're going to be on that team. That seems immensely problematic. Like to to think that you don't have any perspectives that conflict with anyone else on your team of conservatives, you agree with all of them on everything. That's insane. There's no way. And I would even say like, even if you take the top 10 major topics and you sit down with all of your conservative people that are technically on your team, you're probably going to disagree on a lot of things with a lot Ten of different two. people. Ten, right. <laughs> so like what, I don't get all this. So,
1: so let's, let's back it up to the Westminster parliamentary system that's come out of, you know, our British tradition where the purpose of teams, okay, is to operate more cohesively in putting ideas forward and challenge. That doesn't mean to our earlier Comments on how you filter 110,000 voices for myself. And now you're absolutely within the conservative team. There is a wide a variety of perspectives and viewpoints, as there is with the liberal. I'm not as familiar with the range of ideas on the NDP, but I can make some probably educated guesses. And so that negotiation, that filtering process doesn't just happen at the writing level where I take the views that I hear. I now have to go, we meet as a national caucus every Wednesday morning for three and a half hours. And we'll have uh, weekend retreats and we'll have a national convention coming up where there's a full further process of people with different perspectives on the same team working at position working at how do we come at this and and no we don't always agree. it's in that dialogue in that debate that debate occurs internally is as much as it occurs externally and it's that back and forth because yeah in the end you need to come up to a consensus direction country you know as a, a government of, of the whole so that's what this our whole westminster parliamentary system feeds into but even to developing the positions to oppose or support or, or look for amendments that's a debate internally. So, you know, and people, sometimes people just shake their head at the process. It's slow. It is slow and it's cumbersome. But legislation, sausage are two good things. Sometimes you don't want to see them being made. <laughs> so that's something I put back to people. Um, I've developed more patience ever since taking on a role with a provincial crown agency. Because I come from the private sector, I'm used to the speed of the private sector. We make mistakes. We make a decision. If it's a mistake, we correct, you know, course correct. Make the next decision, and on we go. Um, governments, just by their very nature, operate so much slower um, because you need to to have everybody feel a part of a decision that takes time for consultation and for a Even if you don't get your way, uh, often as long as you've had your say, uh, you can feel a part of the decision. And I've had to pull in the direction of a team on with decisions I don't agree with. That's part of our system. If you ever played on a, on a sports team, you know, there's a coach, you know, and sometimes the coach made decisions. You're all on that same team and you don't always agree. You know?
0: So um, you're saying that there was decisions made with that your team made some decisions that you had to get behind because you were on the team, but you didn't fully support them. Absolutely. And and every politician will always have to do
1: that. So the question is, how do you live with yourself for that? Well, I've I've had the chance to chair and be a part of many boards of directors. So you have to, I can live with myself as long as I've had the opportunity within our tent in the, in the in closed confidential doors to air my view. And if that does not carry the day, you either believe in democracy or you don't. And so my job is to convince my peers of my perspective. If I'm unable to do that, then I, if, if I want to remain part of the team, you know, must pull in that same direction, even though I don't agree with Now, if it conflicts with my personal convictions to the point uh, that I simply can't do that, then I have two choices. I resign from the team or I quit, Um, but you can't with integrity, you know, I have an obligation to put my voice forward inside the tent. But if you're a part of the team, go with the team once a decision is made.
0: That seems just bonkers problematic to me because like psychologically, if you take groups of people and you show them a line and then another line and then then like on one piece of paper and then a third line on a separate piece of paper and you ask them which line is the same length as the one on the separate piece of paper, it's like a test that people can get in the 98th percentile it's so easy but then once you put them in groups of people and you put actors in paid actors to purposefully influence the others to try and guess the wrong answer the the rule is three it takes three people talking the wrong answer to convince literally any amount of people you can have 10 people in a room you can have a hundred or a thousand three people being certain of like like dogmatically certain of the wrong answer is enough to convince the whole group so you take that and then this uh, the the psychological fallacy that is silence is agreement, which is wrong. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily right. the case. And then you take the variable of people being too embarrassed to not play along with the team or not have oh. the self-confidence to admit that they disagree with something or maybe they don't have the confidence to articulate themselves properly enough because talking is difficult. And right. like my fiancé, she, like she has dyslexia and all the time she'll be talking to me and she'll be like, oh, this thing and I'll try and help along with it and she's said how artificial intelligence has helped her get thoughts out because it's sometimes difficult for people to do that and so then all of those variables added up and then this idea that everyone has to go with the group consensus is just going to create abundant situations where you might just have the whole group agreeing to something that realistically 60 percent or more of them technically disagree with so
1: i i fully understand that. And that is group dynamics. That's human nature in almost all settings. And I'll say to a certain degree, also incurs within our teams. The one difference, and then we want to cover this point earlier, is that the vast majority of folks that put themselves into this situation where you're under this much public scrutiny, we're A-type, we're not shy, And so very seldom will you have, like we, we understand that the, um, the concept of party discipline, but Even with party discipline in place, and I can tell you without breaking caucus confidentiality, um, we're not shy, and we'll go to the mic, and we will disagree with each other. Have strong, strong personal relationships underneath, but we will loudly disagree with each other and debate that back and forth. And so those those perspectives get aired, and then you know decisions have to be made. Um, I had another. Pointed response and it just slipped out of my mind. Um, the Oh, yeah, there, there it was. I think Winston Churchill covered this. When it comes down to our system of government, right, you know, he basically put this as the Westminster system being the absolutely worst of any of them other than all the rest. Because if you take away the party and the group system, I and mean, you you can look to republics, you know, so it's not a, con- we're a constitutional monarchy, but underneath are, we've got teams, basically parties. A republics, a republican system does not have the mon- monarchy, but basically has teams. You could say, you know, should there be more teams, less teams? Should it be first past the post and things like that, are open debates? But the what are the what are the alternatives? Well, the alternatives is one precision, you know, fascism, or communism, top down, or uh, make it while we all have equal voices. While we do, but if you don't organize yourselves, let's take our House of Commons, 338 members, 338 opinions. How do you form a consensus? That's one of the you know there's pros and cons to first past the system versus proportional representation. Proportional representation leads you to many 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 teams in the house and I've had the chance to be in Peru where there's 16 teams in their, in their uh, Congress. And so the ruling party right now had 16% of the popular vote, but they formed a coalition. They were the largest group. And so you had one voter in eight on the team that was ruling the country. Um, and so somewhere in there, there has to be a balance. You know, here in Canada, we have five parties plus independents represented in the House of Commons. The US, you basically have two plus a few independent voices. You know, what's the best system? And, you know, over time, it can change. Media has a huge influence. Social media has a, affected all of the, all the dynamics in the teams. And between us, insider, uh, it's an open discussion. I'm open for alternatives that are better than the messy system we have now.
0: Well, I I like to think that technology hasn't been utilized enough with communication because, like, there it's just so. For example, the the house you mentioned, the House of Commons, you can see on TV the the Prime Minister and other people talking back and forth, and there's the, the Mister Speaker or whatever. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. So ex- that you nailed it. That's my question. I do right. not understand it. I'm never going to understand it. It drives me insane that the right. prime minister, so like you're yep. conservative, you're not liberal. I'm going to go ahead and guess that there's a lot of stuff that he does and says that you don't agree with. I do not understand that man. I do not love him. His perspectives just drive me insane some of his decisions drive me insane the way he talks makes my skin crawl sometimes with that said a lot of politicians do in that way but he's the prime minister of country if right. that man is speaking i'm going to shut up and listen i think it's just a horrific system that our prime minister presumably was supposed to be the most important individual in the country is talking and there's people shouting and booing excuse my Why? language but what the fuck?
1: yeah why so there is a there is a purpose for that i mean and this is not a new phenomenon the uh, actually i looked at some tapes from about 20 years ago uh, where the house was even more raucous than it's been i mean we just came through a five week stretch, and so whenever the house sits for five weeks we get crankier and crankier because we're we're all working 12 to 16 hour days and then flying back and home to our ridings on the weekend so it's a, it's a it's a long grind and so people's tempers and fuses become shorter the purpose and what you're seeing is question period one hour out of one every day. That's not how the vast majority of government work gets done. The purpose of questioning period theory is to hold the government to account, where the opposition has a chance to question the prime minister on Wednesdays to minister. What you're not seeing in the camera shots are the press, the media, and so sometimes the -the over-the-top theatrics from both sides of the aisle Are designed for one thing to attract attention to an issue either through the media through i mean today it's through the media um it was less rancorous or less um theatrical before television cameras came you know that changed the whole style in the 1970s now social media has been amplified that much more because you're looking for the clips but the underlying purpose is to bring attention the public's attention to an issue if you want to see how i mean quite you know, I have stood in, in some of that tone, asked a question and had a parliamentary secretary respond with uh, some indignation to the how dare I ask that kind of a question. And we've both sat down and texted each other. Oh, good one. And so you have some of that going on because we're both fulfilling a role. And so while you see that barking back and forth, you see the chatter underneath the cameras also going on. At times it's emotional and charged, and at times it's more bantering. So if you want to go, go to parl, parlview.com, and you can not you can always click on question period but go to some of the other sections of government. Go to some of the speeches. Go to some committee hearings. Look at our foreign affairs or the ag, particularly the ag committee. I enjoy that one because it's probably one of the least part of where you work at the issue. And you can get it, you'll get a completely different tone of how government works. And there's a lot more time spent at committee working with witnesses who are testifying to government. that's what happens, right? A piece of legislation gets brought forward to the House by the government. It's When it's introduced, it's deemed to have been read the first time. Then it comes up for debate the second time for second reading. And then if it passes the second reading it gets referred to a committee there's 28 standing committees of parliament and that's where 12 members of, of 12 mp six liberals four conservative one block one ndp attack the legislation and by attack i mean calling witnesses explore it explore amendments work it through and then as amended or sometimes called that piece of legislation comes back to the house of commons for third reading for more debates so what you're seeing is one hour every day 46 questions of 35 seconds or less where the questioner gets to ask etc and it often is about a piece of legislation in front of the committee or in front of the house but it could be about the news of the day i expect i mean today the house is not sitting this week but at 12 noon today you know the special rapporteur is going to bring his report on foreign interference that will generate a lot of headlines I can almost guarantee you on Monday at, uh 2 p.m. When we come back, questioning period, depending on what happens at noon today, that will dominate the theme of question. But go to pearlview.com or CPAC or any of them that broadcast every word, every camera angle that's out there and watch your government. It is pain, like watching paint riot time, but it, it gives people a different flavor because you're right. The vast majority of public believe that the, you know their two year olds are running the country when, when they see them arguing in the sandbox called the House of Commons.
0: Question. So it, what, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's essentially a play in a way.
1: It, it is it is a part of a process and it's probably one of the most theatrical yeah um, for purpose not always necessarily good mm-hmm. uh and it goes too far and that's the speaker's job to re- rein it back in when it becomes unparliamentary so he especially at the end of a session the speaker does not have an easy time of it um but there is purpose and there is 200 300 years of tradition behind for
0: purpose the tradition is great and all but <laughs> if i might say it seems kind of silly to be making, to for part of the process of the decisions to be made for the country to be in such a, I get put simply childish manner. Sure. Right? It just I, it seems like- well,
1: No decisions are ever made at question period. It's called never called answer period, it's called question, question okay, period. So well, there's no answers, there's no decisions ever made in question
0: period. There, there seems to be very little answers during question period.
1: <laughs> uh, and on that point in particular, I 100% agree with you, and it's one of the frustrations we have.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. And that, that I don't get either is like, why yes. is it that someone's even allowed to not answer a question? Like if I say, what's your favorite color, Dave? And you say other, anything it, other than a color. Let me
1: talk to you about the rainbow. Let me, and for 35 seconds, I'll, I'll do everything but answer your question. Yeah. And, and that was very frustrating, which also raises the emotional tone of the response.
0: And I don't understand why, when that happens, the speaker sh- should just have the, like the jurisdiction, I guess, to say, yeah. Uh, please try again. Yeah. Like,
1: uh, the speaker has a fair bit of latitude, um, both to the questioning side. Now, uh, If it gets too, um, if the shouting gets too loud, he'll allow a minister or the prime minister to start over again in his response. Now, technically, the speaker does not have the jurisdiction judge the validity or the fulsomeness of an answer. Can
0: we give him that? Can we just give him that little <laughs> check mark?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that requires uh, a change in the standing orders done by consensus. And you'll probably have no government of the day you know, irrespective of any any partisan color uh, agree to that because, you know, part of the to and the fro. And again, part of the you want the media to broadcast the non-answer. You know, here you have a uh, the opposition is raising a legitimate question as to, you know, when did they know about my colleague Michael Chong's family being, you know, harassed, being uh, influenced or whatever by the uh, Chinese communist government. And we have done an answer. You know, uh, we've spent an entire question period. So the public should know that the government's not answering that question. Yeah. That, even that sends a so, message. But. How do you do? Well, you have to ask that question 26 times in order for the clip picked up by the national. And so it's broadcast because, you know, the average Canadian thinks about politics six minutes a week. That's it. And so if you're in politics, immersed in it, how do you get your messages through to a general public that care a bit more around election time, around tax time, and these days, every time they go to the grocery store and buy groceries, but, you know, how do you get their attention toward, you know, how do we address some of these issues? It's a long, slow process, but having the people there of a perspective that you agree with, I mean, everyone has that responsibility
0: To cast a ballot. Yeah. What you're saying, it kind of reminds me of a clip from Pierre asking about like the average cost of a home in Ontario or something or in Canada and them just not answering and then him getting back up and going, how much? and then sitting back down. That was kind of hilarious. Uh, On that note, uh, Pierre Polievre. I don't exactly know how to pronounce his last name. So Polyevre, Polyevre. okay. Uh, It's my understanding that you weren't entirely supportive of him initially, but you are now. That's that's correct. So So how did that change come to be? Or (laughs) I guess based on our previous conversation, are you just following the team now?
1: Uh, So uh, the conservative party, and I'll grant this to the liberal party, practice democracy when it comes to their leadership so we don't appoint a leader there's a contact and so we had four people running to become leader I picked the team it was the Jean Charest team the Jean Charest team did not win that's how democracy worked and now uh, what I will say is the Conservative Party under Pierre, he won so convincingly and has made me a convert, um, is that um, we have been as as knighted as we have ever been in my experience. And so I've come to partisan politics fairly late in life. I, I became much more interested after my term as vice chair of AgriCorps, a provincial crown agency, when I first serving on that board because I had to be nonpartisan. In fact, I was appointed by a provincial liberal cabinet minister. Um, that I was appointed by the Lieutenant Governor but I was recommended by the Liberal government to serve there um, but I became concerned about the state of how some things were happening with an older government in Ontario came back and joined the Riding Association so the local conservative organizations both provincially and federally and so that's how I became engaged fairly late in life. 2017, 2016, 2017 I became to participate. 2018 there was an opportunity for me to run for the nomination so I took it. Uh, that was on my shoulders not on the party because the party remained neutral. I had three other challengers just to become the conservative candidate and so the local conservatives then had to shoot dave up and three other people they just wanted to become the conservative and then once that was done then you have to heal your party right locally now everybody has to get behind my office, myself, to run to challenge the Liberals and the NDP. And so now we won that. Same thing happens at the national stage. And so Pierre won convincingly. Um, we have a solid, unified party. And I hadn't experienced that because the three leaderships prior to that, very, very close. You recall you know, Andrew Scheer won by one percentage point over Max Bernier um, back in 2017. It was the first leadership I, I was particip- you know participated in. the Aaron O'Toole. Second ballot, right? Second or there was even third ballot, right? And so. We always had factions that were close to evenly matched. And uh, when Pierre won so convincingly in the first ballot, you have the conservatives sending a message. That doesn't mean that we don't have a variety of views. Pierre knows where I stand on some issues. I've spoken to him as recently as last week on some some advice, but I respect his role as leader
0: and I support his leader. Okay, so basically, initially, you thought someone else would be better for the position and you voted for yes. someone else. And then when he came into power, it, the combination of his... Uh, dominant sweep into power, I guess. And the his behavior now that he's been in power yeah, has correct. kind of gotten oh. you to a point where you're like, oh wow, this guy's not so bad actually. Um
1: yeah, not not so much good and bad. I, you know, he has tended to come more from a libertarian, more from a very much less government perspective. You know, my background would have been more on the progressive side of the conservative party. So that's where that if there were clashes, it would be more philosophical. Um he has been very welcoming. He has been working with all parts of our party uh and our party's unified. And so that doesn't mean, you know, there aren't good discussion, but some of the camps has totally disappeared. And so I'm very, very optimistic uh, moving forward.
0: That's awesome. W- when it comes to local things with uh, Chatham, Kent, Leamington, it's my understanding. So as far as my history, I am a ISA certified arborist as well okay. as own a gym. Um, it's my understanding that we're down to like 2% tree coverage in Chatham and I when I it was only a couple years ago I was working for a tree company and there there was word that someone brought to Chatham Kent Council or something I don't know what it was but it was just an image of a tree that was fallen over in a ditch and the roots were torn up and that it was like this is a problem And and then they kind of went okay well we need to just clear all the ditches of trees and then they started doing that and that's insane to me like first of all when a tree's over in a ditch it's not a big problem in fact from a tree removal perspective it's a lot easier. It's already on the ground and it's really, <laughs> the hard part, right yeah. Exactly. So it's like quite often not any more expensive to get it removed. And the tree coverage is already so low in Chatham-Kent. And then I was one of the guys for a while with a chainsaw on ditch banks, just chopping everything down. I would show up to a job site and they'd be like, okay, from this road, this many blocks down, just kill everything. And I don't understand that because if you look at it from like a ecological standpoint, trees near water like that is exceptionally beneficial for like helping filter pesticides and stuff like that, helping balance the nitrogen, create an eco ecosystem. And then if you wanna talk about like snow and the dangers of drifting and stuff on roads, if you're driving on like this past winter, we had some crazy drifting and then I'd hit a section where the road was bare clear because there's just a bunch of pine trees over on the side. So why why are we killing so many damn trees in the
1: area? Uh, let me start macro and kind of work way, way back down. So I mean, trees, everybody loves trees. I like trees. As a farmer, I didn't like trees growing irregularly. So I've cut down an awful lot, but I've planted more cut down. Um, so I I come from the basic, goods, you know, squaring up farms, just so the woodlots weren't irregular and encroaching squaring up fields so i've removed them i've removed very very wide you know shelter beds trimmed up but then planted straight rows of trees and then left other areas to go so to me i mean that's more of a, a practical approach first you specifically mentioned creeks there's one i mean no, no issue there uh, you know from your shelter but stabilizing the banks just uh, so long as it isn't also i mean if it's a natural river great if it's actually drainage creeks the reason you have drainage creeks is so that you know in, in rapid floods things can drain. So, as long as that is maintained, by all means, there's no reason to uh, you know necessarily you know cut down all the trees. Is you don't want that holding up the water so much. And this is you know from a farming perspective because your crops drown. There's a reason mm-hmm. we have drainage, particularly here in, in Chatham Kent and Leamington, so flat, the ground so flat. You know, a lot of these aren't natural water courses, they were created as a, as a management technique to, to remove water. Um, but you know, you've got the Thames River, you've got Sturgeon Creek, you've got all of our creeks, you know, that's more of a natural phenomenon. So you've got two different, two different situations potentially going on there. Trees overall, by all means. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get into the municipal discussions because I do have to stay in my own lanes with tree cutting bylaws and things like that. I unfortunately, you know, what happened, I think, the moment you know tree cutting bylaws started to be put forward, that caused an awful lot of bushes cleared <laughs> before that came into place because people did not want their rights infringed upon. Um, I always prefer the carrot rather than the stick. If if society wants more trees, wants more woodlands, how society. Well, we have park, you know, uh, we can expand our park system, which society pays for. Um, we can incentivize private land to uh, you know, to maintain and whatever. I I'm personally just not so supportive of coercing private folks to pay the cost of what something society, you know, voluntary. Sure. So that's uh, beyond that, I would venture outside the federal scope and should probably stay within my lane. So,
0: uh, so I like that idea. You're basically, you, uh, if I'm right, you're talking about providing like maybe monetary incentive or some sort of tax break to, and this is just an idea. It's- I'm coming up with that is like maybe to like farmers to maintain a certain percentage of tree coverage or that they get some sort of benefit for hitting so many trees planted or whatever. Because like to me that there's very little trees along the roadways and that drives me insane because again of the snow and what that's going to do for the filtration of the pesticides and everything. And like just,
1: let, let me ask you on that question. Where should those trees be planted? On the road allowance that's publicly owned or on the private property beside
0: it? On the private property because the to maintain them from the road is going to be problematic because then their root systems could damage the road as well. And that's just a whole extra thing. If you put it on the private property, the farmer, I, I know they're losing money if they have to come in a little bit because they're losing a big strip of crop, but that's where the financial incentive would be. I would say if you just off balance whatever kind of financial loss that they might have for maintaining the trees and then for the crop space that they're losing by just coming in a layer of one tree I think that would be a reasonable compromise
1: yeah or what about just expanding the road allowance so it isn't so close to the road and having them publicly to
0: to, so you're talking about like making the roads wider
1: yeah yeah not the road itself but the road allowance right because road allowances are all 66 feet right now they they were so so you have society buy the land off of
0: the? no that's not gonna work because you just talked about the water drainage systems that we put in and all the digging that was done to make all those ditches and stuff so the amount of work and money that would be involved to expand that out and reposition all of those drainage yeah, systems well, that, that yeah just i'm not
1: talking about repositioning drainage system but you can certainly have the i mean the drainage systems are um if they're on private property now they have been one third uh, covered by the public purse right although usually the roadside drainages are already part of the public right away so uh, i'm not talking so if you've got to you know the road allowances tend to go to the far side of the of the roadside ditch. So what if you just add another 10 feet of purchase to have the public, the public that wants the trees, purchase the land you know, without moving the roadside ditches.
0: So you're saying having land, so not on the roadside, but on the out, like-
1: yeah, I, I'm not so much talking about the practicalities of it as I'm the philosophy mm behind. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so that, and I'm giving you a bit of pushback because I felt that personally as a farmer, and I think on behalf of the egg community, often they feel that we're less than percent of the population, or one percent of the population. You have society putting demands on externally without the compensation, or without the the you know the recognition of the costs that's being borne by the one percent of society for the other 99. Yeah, and So I've... coming at it. Public
0: perspective. yeah I appreciate that i do I do like pushback that's kind of what all this is about yeah. i and I think that's I think I had covered that by saying like Com- yeah. monetary compensation right. for, for yeah. the loss of crop and everything yeah. i tried to get out ahead of that because like me if, if it's a monetary thing then fine get give right. them some sort of tax break that covers that but at the end of the day the trees are going to benefit everyone right
1: right mm-hmm. I, I fully agree fully agree so uh that's but yeah uh, a, a tax yeah I, yeah again, and
0: it, i don't it, know it's whether cool. it's a tax break or a grant or i, I don't know like whatever yeah. however you want to calculate it but just figure out a way to calculate how much yield they get in that section how many feet you got to come in to plant whatever trees and... Yeah, like it's all calculatable.
1: I agree with you. I just think that the cost, the number after you've done that exercise, public would not be willing to pay that cost at all because it would be much, much larger.
0: Oh, I think it would be very, very expensive. But I think that's a small price to pay for, you know, trees and oxygen and a better environment.
1: very much supportive of trees. I, I, you know, as is the public, you know, I find it a bit um, humorous, sadly humorous. I'm sure there's a word that covers that. But, you know, you've had a 2015 pledge to plant two billion more trees. By the federal government. You know, I don't know how many trees we're in. I think we're getting close to a thousand or a hundred thousand. But basically, the almost a nothing of Jesus. fulfilling that plan. But what people don't realize, if you ever want a, an interesting exercise, Google the following. How many trees are there in Canada? I mean, planting trees, noble thing. I've planted many more, but how many trees are there in Canada? Uh, do a quick Google. Let's see what your Google says. And then you, you, you begin to understand. The...
0: Canada has roughly 318 billion trees, which Correct. cover almost 40% of the country. Correct.
1: And so now you have a liberal pledge to address climate change by planting 2 billion trees. So in percentage terms. What's two divided by 318? They're in increase our cover by? Uh,
0: by 0.6%. Correct. Well done. That's some progress.
1: That's some progress.
0: Do that every year for 100 years.
1: Well, you see, you promised it in 2015 We're in 2023. We're about 2% of the way on that first promise.
0: 2% of 0.6%. I, I not
1: really the exact number. They're nowhere near. Yeah. <laughs>
0: We'll say not very far along on making their 0.6% progress. There you go. Yeah. And then I, I think another part on this topic that people miss is that it, I don't remember the stat exactly, something like 5,000 tons of carbon or something, right. one mature tree, when you cut down one big mature tree, there's just so much carbon released into the atmosphere when you do that from it right. breaking down, et cetera. And then people think, oh, I can just go plant trees because I cut down trees and then I'm, you know, morally balanced or whatever. Right. It, yeah. No, it doesn't work like that you cut down like a hundred year old oak tree you're gonna have to plant something like a thousand Or more trees. And then if you say plant a thousand or say 10,000 little saplings, maybe in five or 10 years, those 10,000 little trees will be balanced enough for that one tree that you cut down.
1: Yeah, I I think that that's a fair point. There's all kinds of ways of sequestering carbon. Uh, Again, the ag community has done so much of it over the last 40 years and changing their practices, more so in Western Canada, even than here, although in in Ontario, we've done a lot as well uh, by going away from the moldboard plow by much more. Cover much more cover crop cover again, which which society is just catching up to now as to what the issue is. I mean, agriculture moved that way partly for uh, other uh, noble reasons, soil conservation and all sorts of other things. But that's again not widely or well understood. The same as you know, a political announcement of planting two billion trees is done for political purposes. Well, when in the context of well, we got three hundred eighteen now. We're going to move that number to three hundred twenty, but it's going to take us ten years to do it. Okay. Well, are you doing it because of the environment, or are you doing it because you have an election? coming up well it's probably because an election you have had two more elections since then you still haven't fulfilled the promise with the last one but they keep re-announcing good enough so that doesn't speak against the inadvisability of planting trees. Everybody should. And you're right. It takes time. You know, uh, you know, plant a, a wise person. You plant a tree for under whose shade you'll never sit. Right. That is forward thinking. So I very much support that and, not, and enjoy planting trees. But don't be fooled by political problems.
0: Yeah. And I think I think more attention needs to be given to the big trees we currently have. We just need to be caring for them more because replacing them is just so hard. Uh, like there's a bunch of stuff that I would like to talk about, about all the stuff we've covered. I've, there's been so many things that I've had side tangent questions for and everything. I I really want to respect your time. It is 1030. Like yeah, here, I and I really appreciate your time. Um, so is there any final thing? And I would love to do this again if you're game for it. Um,
1: yeah, I, I would be because you know what, the what this can be a part of is exactly the commitment I've made to decisions of Chatham can't live is that to be available and to listen. And so, I, I guess this is I've done more talking than I have done listening here.
0: Oh, it's all good. Uh,
1: But if this uh, spurs responses, I'm open for that. So keep an eye in your mailboxes. Uh, We're just in the process of setting up our summer coffee tours. Uh, We'll be doing another round of passport clinics as well that have been very, very popular. Um, And take advantage of those we've tried to add them in the evenings as well there's some early criticism that uh, you know how can we only have them during the daytime day well we listen to that and so we've put up some evening roundtables as well to give all those you know an opportunity and then I, we, unfortunately we can't do it everywhere over the whole riding so we have to try and pick a town or a city and then we move it around over time so uh try and get them i think we're we're at 56 public engagements or public opportunities so far in 2023 so we'll uh we'll keep working at that
0: awesome that's great uh so and then if you want to do this again sometime, you just let me know. I'll email your your people there.
1: E- email my staff and we'll set something up.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts, Dave. Appreciate it. You enjoy the rest of your day, sir. You too, Trevor. Have a great day. Take care. Hey, you listening to this right now. You, yes, you. I appreciate that you've listened to it this far. That's awesome. And that means that you at least enjoyed it or else you would have stopped it and... and done something else. And it would be really cool if you could share it with someone. I'm sure you know somebody that might also enjoy it. So just, you know, hit the little share button and there'll be like a link you can copy and you can just text it to your BFF Jill. I don't know if you know a Jill. I don't know. Just somebody. Just share it with one person and I will be forever grateful. Thank you. Have a great day.